I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes first from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, then Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57, and Romans 6, verses 5 through 9. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is God's word. Good morning. Uh, I'm Jonathan, one of the pastors here. Good to have you here. 
braving the elements. Actually, I mean, I don't really, there are not many elements to brave. I don't know why I said that. It's not like it's a hurricane or, you know, a tornado out there. It's a little bit of rain. So be self-righteous that you came today. Feel better about yourself because you came today. Uh, and that you really didn't brave much at all, but came. Um, no, seriously, uh, we're in uh, two weeks to go here in our uh, series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we're to the resurrection of the body. To the very, very end, uh, next week we'll finish, and then the following week we will uh, begin a new series. And I hope it's been helpful to you uh, as you have been thinking through really what are the major tenets of the Christian faith. Uh, that's, that, that's a lot of what we have tried to do and tried to stick with this summer, uh, that they're worth believing, that they're worth believing into. So to say, I believe, uh, is a powerful life-altering statement, or at least it should be. Uh, to you. Uh, The truths that we proclaim in the creed should shape every nook and cranny of life. If they're significant enough to stake your life on, if they're significant enough to say, stand up and say, I believe and carry on with everything that you believe. Uh, And so I hope this has been a series on the basics of Christianity, uh, at least even with some of the major doctrines that Christians believe and that you can point friends of yours who ask you, what do you believe? To the creed. Simply recite it for them right there on the spot. You know, that'd be great. Or point, it, uh, point them to it online. Uh, I hope that it can serve as a resource of sorts for you as you engage with non-Christians around you because the Apostles' Creed really does encapsulate Christianity. This week, uh, we come, though, to one of the more radical statements of the creed, let's be honest. It's a statement tied to one of the most controversial uh, and even mystical pieces of Christian teaching and, and Christian doctrine, Christian belief, a confession that we believe in the resurrection of the body, which presumes, of course, that we believe uh, in resurrection in the first place, right? Uh, and so the, the three points there on your insert uh, that comprise the outline are walking through the, 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 these three ideas, basically, death, and that you have to deal with it, uh, the resurrection of the body. We declare, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Why is that significant? Why do we not just say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection, period, okay? We say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And then lastly, why is hope so often tied to resurrection? What's the significance of that? So what? Why does it matter that we believe in the resurrection of the body and that we have hope as a result of that? Okay, so those three things uh, that we're going to take in looking at this idea uh, or this theme, this teaching of the resurrection of the body. So first dealing with death. And here, here's the question. What, what good is a religion that doesn't deal with death? Honestly, what good is a worldview if you don't have a way to handle death or deal with death? Because you have to have something you believe about the afterlife. Something. Either there isn't one, either when you die, that's it, or you float off into the clouds, or like the ancient Egyptians, uh, you find yourself crossing uh, the, the river Styx or some other name for it, and, you know, they, they found in the tombs of the kings all the, all, all that gold and all that paraphernalia in their, in their tombs uh, and in their uh, sarcophaguses and all that stuff. Uh, it all is a result of 
needing to deal with death. We all know it's coming. So do we think about preparing for it or living in light of it? I attended a, a funeral this last week, and every time you go to one, you're sort of reminded of your own mortality. At least you should be. Right? Or are we committed to living as if it's, it's so far off, it's so far in the distance, we'll deal with it later. There, there's so much on our plates here and now, right? Why be morbid and think about the end, right? Let's focus on what we've got to do this week. Uh, most of you have heard it's been said, two things are certain. What are they? Death and taxes. Uh, well, there are ways to avoid taxes or cheat the system, or so they say, uh, Whoever the they is, I, I, I don't know how to do that. Do you have any hints or advice uh, and you want to throw it my way? I'd be willing to listen. But the reality is taxes are not as certain. There are ways to get around some of them, right? But you can't cheat or avoid death. Okay? Just a reminder to all of you this morning, newsflash, you're all going to die. Sorry to be morbid, uh, but, you know, that's your dose of, of honesty and, and sort of reality check for the day. Now, here's the problem for the modern person. In the West, what we call secularism has exalted individual freedom and happiness above everything else, okay? So the point of life is really to discover your authentic self. That's, that's, that's the aim. That's why some of the most popular shows are reality shows, Right? Keeping up with the, uh, I forget, I always forget their name, uh, Kardashians, right? Why do you want to watch that stuff? Because you want to watch other people live their amazing life. Why? Because the fixation is on the here and now, okay? It's not a story about how she's thinking about how she's going to die, or they're all thinking about how they're going to die. They're thinking about right now, discovering themselves, living, expressing themselves, but by and large, this is the first culture in the history of the world. You may not realize this, but it's true. This is the first culture in the history of the world that hasn't attempted to somehow incorporate into its worldview a meaningful view of death. Today, death simply interrupts. It simply stops the story of your life. It doesn't enhance progress towards your goals. It destroys that progress. So how does the modern world try to deal with it? Well, we might make it a part of the natural life cycle. In fact, some philosophers some sort of modern-day intelligentsia have said, uh, you know, it's just part of the natural flow. It's inevitable, so don't be afraid of it. And, you know, you can hear faintly in the distance Elton John singing, right? It's the circle of life, you know, from uh, The Lion King. But that doesn't work for very long, right? That'll eventually kind of, you know, break. You'll eventually get depressed, you'll eventually come to realize, oh my goodness. Because the reality is, although we might live in denial of it, like everything we repress, it continues to disturb us, it continues to haunt us, and, and it continues to quietly erode any sense of hope for anything beyond. Why is that? Because all human beings are in relationships. This is why funerals often are so depressing. Because you, people get up, and they, they cry, they're sad, they eulogize this person. Why is it such a significant thing? Because they were in a relationship with that person. Because that person is significant in their life for whatever the reason was, however they were related to them. And when another human being dies, you lose the relationship and the meaning that came with it. It's why it's so painful. 
The famous psychotherapist Carl Jung said this about death. Death, quote, death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. A human being is torn away from us. There no longer exists any hope of a relationship, for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. Now, that's more like it. That's what I call an honest assessment of the reality that this really stinks. And if I wasn't standing up here with a microphone that was being recorded and going to be put on an app for public consumption, I'd use a different word that begins with S and goes U-C-K-S. I'll spell it out. Because it does. Death really does. But the unknown is another reason that we fear it. We just don't know what's after you die. Are you conscious? Are you unconscious? The famous atheist Christopher Hitchens was sure God didn't exist, and he mocked Christian faith. And you know he died of throat cancer, I believe it was. But the real, for him, the reality was he was betting the farm. His whole faith, his whole life, he was betting on the fact that there was nothing afterward. When he died, that was it. But how did he know? How did he know? Well, he was living on faith. The same blind faith he mocked Christians for, he was living by faith that there was nothing. And in order to truly know how to deal with death, you'd have to find somebody who's died and then returned to tell what was it like. And I have good news. The good news is the only way to deal with death, honestly, courageously, is to know the only one who's ever been through it and came back. And you know who I'm talking about, don't you? That's Jesus Christ, who went into death, experienced all of its horrors, all of its brutality, and then punched it in the throat and came back to life on the third day. Because the death of death came through the death of Jesus. Do you believe that? I was reminded this week at that funeral that the woman who died believed that. So as she died, the last few weeks of her life, she died very peacefully. She died relaxed. She died courageously. She wasn't afraid of it. She just kind of took it head on because she knew her Savior had already punched it in the throat. Another friend of mine, when his mom died in the last couple of days, or it may have been the last hours, I never forget this, and I've, I've used it a, a countless times. She said, I may... Uh, he may heal me, he may not, but either way, I win. And why she could say that was because she was hidden in Jesus. The death of death came through the death of Jesus. He took its sting, which Paul says is sin. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, on, on that insert in your worship folder, uh, down toward the, the bottom of that paragraph, uh, in the middle there from 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Well, Jesus took its sting by becoming a sin offering. Not only that, he stripped sin of its power by fulfilling the law. Not only that, he then rose victorious, making resurrection reality possible. So for the Christian now, I love this quote, the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs said, Now for the Christian, death is only a grim porter to let us into a stately palace. Isn't that great? And he will surely let us pass. Through faith in Jesus and only in Jesus do we find the ability to face and even triumph over death. We are able to say, I believe in the resurrection. 
but we say, I believe in the resurrection of the what? The body, right? So what makes Christianity's teaching on the afterlife so unique? We, we believe in the resurrection of the body. And the reason is, I really want to argue for the fact our physical appetites are good things. We were made with them. This is all part of why I believe we believe in the resurrection of the body. It's part of what it means to be human, to have these things, to be made in God's image. But sin has disordered them. It's overcharged them so that, so that we direct them actively toward the wrong things. We're all like, it's an illustration a friend of mine used a couple weeks ago. I really thought this was powerful. He said, we're all like bloodhounds whose noses are out of whack. Our noses are broken because we've been trained to, to, to find a scent and, and then get to the person you know, you, you might smell a scent of an uh, article of clothing that person had worn, uh, but it intended to lead the bloodhound, bloodhound to that person, right? The problem is the scent of God is on everything that's been made, right? A beautiful day, a sunset, marriage, children, uh, family, uh, gosh, the list goes on, right? Everything good. The scent of him is on all of it. But instead of going to him, instead of searching for him, our noses are out of whack, and so we're all over the place with trying to find his scent on the things he has made instead of finding his scent on him and then appreciating and glorying in him and the things he's made as a result of that. We believe in the resurrection of the body because we believe the body is not bad in and of itself. It's broken, for sure. It's perishable. That's what Paul talks about, again, in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like a container of sour cream, right? There's a point at which it reaches an expiration date, and nothing you can do will prevent it from spoiling. But the desires inside of us, the things we pursue bearing the scent of God on them, are proof that we are made for something, for a quality of life and a pursuit of goodness and truth and beauty for longings that can be satisfied, and we know because we get tastes of their fulfillment. We were made we were made for fellowship with him, with our maker, to walk and talk with him in the cool of the day, to enjoy what he's made and has given in the right order, though. And that's the key. We, we, we've been made to do that in the right order. It's only in and through our physical bodies that all that stuff can be experienced. So Christianity is not some sort of out-of-body, floaty, ethereal, spiritual, immaterial belief. It doesn't have any of that in it. In fact, the resurrection of the body. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, if we find in ourselves desires that cannot be satisfied in this world, quote, the most probable explanation is that I was made for what? Those of you may know the, may know the, the statement. He says, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. He says, it's most likely that the earthly desires and pleasures weren't meant to satisfy it truly or completely, but only to arouse it in us to, to suggest the real thing. So if that's true, if that's true, he cautions us. And I'll quote him again. He says, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo. Then he says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. He's not talking about some sort of far-off planet in Star Trek world, okay? He's talking about a, 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 tr a real place, my true country, 
the, 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 the world I was made for, the world that we read about in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, before sin broke it and ruined it, right? I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside, and I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. See, raising of the body means the restoring of the person, not just a part of me, but all of me, to active, creative, undying life for God and with God. And in raising believers, what God does is he completes their redemption by the gift not of their old bodies somehow patched up, but of new bodies fit for new men and women and children. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, right there in the middle, Paul says, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So it's almost as if you get to keep your body, it's just massively changed. See how Paul says that? Verse 51 and then verse 52, he says it twice. We shall be changed. Don't ask me what that means. I mean, some people are like, well, you know, am I going to be, I'd like to weigh a little bit less. You know, I'd like to have a few less wrinkles, no gray hair, no this, no that, right? And all these worldly categories that we tend to use to measure, well, is my resurrection body, I'm going to have a perfect image like the one I've been shooting for all this time. It's why I go to the gym. It ain't doing much good. So I'm looking forward to resurrection some way, somehow, right? But that's not exactly what we're talking about. See, through regeneration and sanctification, God is renewing us inwardly. But in resurrection, we receive bodies to match that inward renewal. See, at the cross, our spiritual problem is guilty sinners before a holy God was satisfied through the death of Jesus. Remember what I said a few minutes ago, the death of death through the death of Jesus. But in the resurrection, the physical brokenness, the ruin of sin is overcome as well. So the Bible doesn't simply promise we'll live forever in an immaterial spiritual existence removed from the world. The end of the Bible actually describes not us ascending to heaven, but what? Heaven coming down here, renewing here, so that we get a new heavens and earth, right? That's the last chapter, last couple of chapters of the Bible. And with heaven descending to the earth means the very last restoration or the very last final renewal that's ever going to be needed will take place and it will be done. There will be no more evil, suffering, aging, disease, poverty, injustice, and keep on listing off all the awful things that you're so sick and tired of hearing about, reading about, or experiencing yourself. But, but, but it's only in the new reality, the one in which we're changed. It's a reality, okay? We're not talking about a dream state. Again, we're not talking about the kind of thing that, you know, you've got to take alternative substances to experience. We're talking about reality. Is our hope immortality? Absolutely. Look at what Paul says, again, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, some of these are just by way of reference. I'm not going to refer to all these passages on the insert. Uh, some of them are just, just great reminders of the Bible's teaching. But Paul says there, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. So absolutely our hope is immortality. But not just for disembodied souls. The uniqueness of Christianity is we believe in the goodness of the material world. 
Look at the first couple of pages of the Bible. It's very clear. When God made it, what did he call it? Huh? Yeah, good. Really good. Very good, right? And then sin came in and broke it and ruined it. And so my hope isn't that my noble soul is trapped in this shell of a body, and if I could just get freed from it, everything would be great. That's ancient Greek philosophy. That's Eastern mysticism. That's not Christianity. We believe in the resurrection of the body. And belief in that is what leads us to hope, and that's where I want to finish. Because hope and resurrection are most of the time, not every time, but most of the time in the Bible, or at least very often in the Bible, they're connected. You find them in the same sentences or in very close proximity in the passage you're reading. And that's because Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruits of a new creation, of which those whose faith is in him are a part. We are experiencing a part of that when we come into him by, by putting our faith in him. Something is different now for the Christian because of something that happened in the past, but also because we look ahead later to a permanent difference. Do you see that? There is an impact now. There's hope for now, but also hope for later because of the past. Uh, Listen, resurrection is not just consolation. It's restoration because we get it all back. We get the love. We get the loved ones. We get the goods. We get the beauties of this life, but we get them in new unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. Now, that should bring you hope. And and while other worldviews, I was really struck by this, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, for seeing the coming sorrows, that's secularism, right? Enjoy it now. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you might die. Who knows? So sit in the joys now, and we, we, we may not even foresee the coming sorrows. We may not even want to think about the coming sorrows. But that's other worldviews. Christianity is, is the complete opposite. It empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows while tasting the coming joy. That's a person who can exist full of hope. There's a coming joy, to be sure, but there's a present joy. If you look at the call to worship from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, a Christian is someone who has been, Peter says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then a couple of verses later he says, and it's in this you rejoice because you have that living hope coursing through your veins now. Um. Now, where I want to finish is in 1 John 3, and that's the first uh, passage that's listed at the top of your insert. So if you'll look there uh, to 1 John 3, I just want to read it again. I know Susan read it earlier, but this is, this honestly for me is some of the best news in all the Bible. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And here's the word. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. God's love for us 
in sending Jesus for us enables him to adopt us as his children. He is in the business of turning his enemies into his children. There will not be one person in the new heavens and earth who wasn't an enemy of God at one point and has now been made his child. Not one. So all of us will be able to reminisce about the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the amazement that we were enemies of God and he single-handedly took us from being an enemy to a child. Who does that? Most of the time we have enemies, what do we want to do? Eradicate them. Get rid of them, right? God doesn't do that. His love for us enables him to adopt us as his children. We are children now, John says, and that means when Jesus returns, he's going to make us completely like him. We're being made like him now, right? In the gospel, he's restored our souls, but in his return, he will restore our bodies just like his. But then John says that the hope flowing out of that purifies us. It cleanses us even now. The hope in Christ for future transformation is a mechanism for holiness in our lives. It's a motivation for holiness and obedience. Now, there's two brief ways, just by way of of application, I want to make that Christian hope is unique. One for later and one for now. The one for later is, is it gives us a real personal hope. The resurrection means a real body for real people in a real new heavens and earth. And at the center of that, and I borrowed this from Jonathan Edwards, who was a, uh, a, a preacher in Massachusetts back in the uh, 18th century. Yeah, 18th century, somewhere in there. I borrowed this from a sermon, heaven will be a world of love. Now, if you just want to be kind of like your mind spin for 30 or 45 minutes or an hour, or however long it takes you to read that sermon, just go read that sermon. You can find it on, on the uh, on the web. It's incredible. And he says that the center of heaven will be a person or God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose, I love this, listen to this, whose eternal, mutual, holy energy. How's that for a phrase? And I'm not talking about like, you know, Oprah Winfrey energy from the earth or Eckhart Tolle kind of energy or whatever it is that all those people write about. I'm talking about energy of an eternal, mutual, holy type that comes from God, the maker of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the center of the new heavens and earth will be this energy of love that flows unfettered through all and in all. We'll get to experience everything we've ever hoped for from every relationship we've ever had in the new heavens and earth Because all love will be perfectly mutual. Is there anybody in your life with whom you're always 100% pleased with the way they love you back when you try to love them? Of course not. Because we're all broken, right? But in the new heavens and earth, when you move to another person to love them, they will move right back to you perfectly the exact same way to love you. All love will be mutual. That should sound, that's just amazing. That sounds so wonderful, right? But not only that, Christian hope is an assured hope. To declare, I believe in the resurrection of the body, is to declare your unwillingness to give in to disappointment. And I'm preaching to myself here, and as I was putting this together, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of myself, and it's what led me to, to just to say this as I finish. It is to declare your unwillingness to give in to disappointment, to live in spite of disappointment and frustration. 
to declare I believe in the resurrection of the body is a battle against unbelief and doubt. It is, to quote the poet Dylan Thomas, to refuse to go gently into that good night. It's a a famous poem he wrote. To rage against the dying of the light. He's talking about death. He's talking about refusing. Refusing its, its, its darkness, right? And part of the challenge is that people who live hopeful, even optimistically, are called dreamers, idealists, or even naive fools at times. And you can end up feeling ashamed to declare your commitment to hope especially in the face of cultural forces of doubt and skepticism and cynicism that are rampant in the West, particularly in the States. It's so hard, okay? Jesus really did rise bodily from the dead, okay? He really did. There's plenty of historical evidence to prove it, and that gives us assurance that our resurrection is coming too. It's what the Bible promises us. And yet the power of the hope we can have now is assurance too. I was reminded of what Paul says in Romans 5. been praying this verse uh, for a friend for a few weeks now. And, and every, time I pray, every time I pray for him, I'm like, oh, oh, give me that too. Please give me that too. And it, 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 it's, it's how we fight against being ashamed or embarrassed of living with hope, living with optimism, living with, 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 with a sense of, courage and, and, and positivity toward what is coming. And it's this, Paul says in Romans 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been what? Poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In the King James it says, shed abroad. There is the fuel for fighting against disappointment. Hope like this can fuel even a person like Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he was waiting for his execution at the hands of the Nazis to say, for the Christian, he wrote this, letters from prison, for the Christian, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. So let's pray, uh, and let's ask Holy Spirit to increase our hope. I really do long that he would increase our hope so we wouldn't be ashamed, but we'd be courageous and assured as we try to love God and our neighbors more faithfully uh, and more... um, more obediently. So let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that in your death came the death of death. But thank you that you didn't stop there. But on the third day, you rose again from the dead to overcome death, to, as I said earlier, punch it in the throat. I'm so grateful. We're so grateful that you did that. So now it doesn't have sting. It doesn't have victory. It is simply a grim porter that takes us into our stately palace. And so may we be a people who, who long for that, who hope for that, who live with that expectancy. And as we interact with one another, as we in particular interact with the world around us, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our community, would they see that? Would they feel that? And would it all flow out of the reality that we are a resurrection people? We are a people identified with and, and, and founded on your resurrection, Lord Jesus, the first fruits. May you increase our faith. May you increase our courage. May you increase our hope. And may we be more like you in the process, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the benediction is, is just a, one more word of the gospel before you go. Uh, and so as the Father raised his hand over the Son on the cross to condemn him, 
that was us, as we just sang, being, being shielded by his blood uh, and saved in him. Uh, so now, when I raise my hands, I get to raise them over you to bless you uh, and, and ask God to, to shine his face upon you, to go with you, and be a person uh, whose, whose life is characterized by peace and, and is a peacemaker. So receive these words. Uh, may they sink down into the, the, the depths of your soul as you go from here today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.